Welcome to another podcast by Dr. Dennis Smith, Senior Pastor of Covenant Life Ministries. To find out more, go to lifeandfocustv.com. Always, so glad to have all of you here. Those who are visiting with us for the first time, we're just delighted to be with us and be a part of what's going on here this morning, what God's doing. And uh, for those that uh, were a part of this body and attended here regularly, but maybe moved away, folks like Connie who moved to the beach. <laughs> Glad to have you back home for a while, yeah. Amen. And those that are joining us online, I know a lot of people join us online. A lot of families out traveling this weekend, and so uh, just good to be together. Amen. You know, um, as believers, we are citizens of another kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. Don't wait till you get to heaven. You don't wait to get to heaven and become a citizen of his kingdom. That happened when you came to Christ. That happened when you surrendered your life to him. We call it the new birth. And through the cross and what Jesus accomplished there, and by reclaiming kingdom rights, authority from the enemy, Satan who had stolen them from man in the beginning when man rebelled against God. Now we can walk in the reality of that kingdom because of him. Look at our theme verse, which is Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians chapter 1 says, you have been rescued. Now, if you're in trouble or if you're in the wrong place, being rescued is a good thing. I mean, if you've ever been broke down on the side of the road, it's nice to have someone come along and be rescued. If a person is drowning, it's a life or death matter. Nothing is more important to them at the moment than being rescued. Another word used in other translations is delivered. For you've been rescued or delivered from the kingdom of darkness, and you've been transferred, that's past tense, you have been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son or the son that he loves. In other words, we've been transferred to the kingdom of God. Now, God has established certain physical laws and principles. We talked about that earlier. For instance, uh, I guess the, the one that we're most familiar with is the law of gravity that God established. It works. It works whether you believe in it or not. It's true. It's a principle that God's established. And just as he established just as he established these physical or material principles or laws, he has established laws under which you and I are to live. Now, not like the Old Testament law of rules and regulations, but he's established principles and a different way of life that we're to live as members of his kingdom, a new kingdom right now. Now, in many ways, this kingdom of God is upside down. It's so different from the world system, the value system of this world. Uh, for instance, uh, Jesus said that we're to love those who hate us. That's contrary to the world system. It says, in order to receive, or if you give, you will receive. That's opposite of the world system. He says, if you want to be great, then be servant of all. That's part of the, that, those are part of the principles of the kingdom of God. 
We talked about two of them before now. We talked about the one principle or precept of life is that, that you, uh, if you sow something, you'll reap it. You reap what you sow. And then we talked about the second precept of life, which was you use it or you lose it. And today we're talking about that third life precept of simply this. Greatness is serving. Greatness is serving. So people ask questions, what is true greatness? What makes a person great? Some people think, well, it's, it's those who've reached a certain status academically. If you have a certain number of degrees or accolades, then you are great. There are others who reach certain uh, points of success, places of success in the sporting field, in academics. I say, my, that person is great. Look at their ability. Look at their ability. Look how they play the game. The most valuable player, number one, measured greatness by that. Some people measure greatness by how much money you have, how influential you are, how much power you have. So there's different ways that the world measures what is really great, what is really successful. Now, uh, we have to understand one thing, and that is that when you were created, when mankind was created, man was created for greatness. I mean, it's something God's put in man. God has, I think, naturally put in people the, the, the drive. Now, some people have lost it, but there is a drive to accomplish, to succeed. And I think that's something God put there in the beginning because when he created Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden, he said, I want you to take dominion and take authority. I've got a job for you to do and it'll be a good one. You're to advance my kingdom here on this earth that I've created. You are important. You'll have authority. Now, their importance didn't rest in themselves. Their importance rested in the God who created them. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference. Now, when man rebelled, turned away from God, the result of that, of their sin and pride, then things changed. Things changed. Then the idea of success and greatness was perverted. It was then about, I want to be greater than someone else. I want to be great for my, for my own selfish reasons I want to be great. Self-centered. It was perverted. And that's, what the, that's what the enemy, that's what Satan does. He takes what's very good and what's very true and he turns it around or he perverts it and it's misused and abused. You look at a lot of things that are going on in the world today that we refer to as horrible things, rebellion against God, sinfulness, these, uh, uh, these things that, that we see happening in the world every day today. And we look at it and say, my what a horrible thing. I, I never could have believed that we could have gotten to that particular state in our country. You, you, you look at these things, they center around a couple of things. First of all, it's the pride of man. I'm going to have my way. Nobody, has, nobody is going to have authority over me. I'm going to have my way. I, I'm number one. I, I deserve this. I'm entitled. You owe it to me. And it's that mentality that says, if I have more, and if people know me, and if I control more people, then that makes me great. That makes me great. And that self-centered greatness is very, it's a false one. It's really not great and it's not lasting. It's very temporary. So I want to give you this morning, very quickly, uh, as we talk about what does it really mean to be great, I want to give you three marks of greatness. And as we learn how 
uh, greatness is all about serving. Three marks of greatness. First of all, we'll look at a criterion of greatness, and that is childlikeness. Childlikeness. Now, on each one of these, we're going to go with the scripture and see what Jesus has to say about it. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 through 4, look at that with me. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? Now, I don't know what they thought the answer might have been, but this is not what they thought it was going to be. Verse 2. Jesus called a little child to him and he put a child among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who comes as humble as this little child and welcomes this child in my name, then that person is great. That person is great. Childlikeness. Interesting example. Because we usually don't we usually don't see childhoods as synonymous with greatness. There's some great things about kids, but we don't recognize them necessarily as being an item of uh, people of success, or power, or authority, or greatness. It's a real important lesson Jesus is teaching here. So he says, you need to become like this little child. Now, we don't know who that little child was. I get this kind of weird thing that goes on sometimes to where when I read scripture, I, I, I don't want to ever get unscriptural about something. I, I, want to be, I want to be committed to the truth of the word. I don't want to say anything that's not in there. But sometimes I think about what ifs. Or I, I read little things in between the lines there. And, and I put myself in the place there and I see that these disciples have asked Jesus this this huge philosophical maybe theological question who is the greatest in your kingdom and I don't know who they might have had in mind Moses, Abraham, Elijah maybe themselves who's the greatest and instead of that he calls the young child to himself maybe puts his arm around the child I don't know he takes the child to himself and he uses that child as an illustration he says you have to become like was that, who, whose kid was that? It looks like the references here are not large gatherings, but this is when he's called his disciples off to themselves. He's in a little group. He's in a small group. You know, small groups are not new. He was in a small group. The disciples were a small group. He was in a small group, and they wanted to learn something. So he said, here, let me bring this child. That child must have been convenient. Must have been with insight. Did that child belong? Was he a family member? There's no outsiders there that we're aware of. It wasn't like the whole community was there. Did it belong to one of those who'd asked him that question? We don't know, and it probably doesn't make a whole lot of importance. I just think about stuff like that. But it got their attention, didn't it? He says, you want to know who's really great? Here. Come here. And he says, this is greatness. What is there about childhood or childlikeness that's great? Well, I think we can look, we can look at some things. We can see that there, there, there's some greatness in these things in a child. First of all, a child, is, a child wants to learn. 
A child is teachable, wants to learn. That's, listen, it, when we get to a place where we think we know it all or get to a place where we cannot learn, then we become very foolish. And if you want to advance in the kingdom of God and you want to walk out the greatness that God has called you to, then you and I need to stay teachable. Stay, you know, children are curious. I don't know those of you who have children or, you know, young now or maybe those of you children have grown up and you got grandkids. Anyway, you, you, you understand that children are just naturally curious. They ask questions and more questions and more questions. Do they do that just to aggravate you? Well, you know. No, they do it because they, they want to know. They're, they're curious. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of attitude and spirit you and I want to keep, that you and I want to keep as, as his children, as his followers. Lord, teach me. Lord, show me. You've you got to stay teachable if you're going to walk in greatness and the way God has designed it to be. A child remains curious and teachable. A child is trusting. A child is trusting. All of us, probably all the dads are here for one time or another. You've had children and children were growing up. They'd be standing up on maybe a high a place somewhere up on, a, up on a, uh, some type of stage or, or porch or uh, on the playground. And they're standing up high and, they're, and you just tell them, open your arms and say, jump. Jump. Now, in most circumstances, for a real dad, the dad needs to be, then that child can be completely trusting. That child, you know, that child might be scared of, of heights and may look around for just a moment, but when that child focuses in on the father, daddy, and daddy says, come on, I'll catch you, that's enough. You know, that's greatness when you learn to trust God just that much. Child is dependent. I know a lot of them don't act like it. They act very independent. Don't get me started on my trips to Walmart and independent kids. <laughs> but may I repeat, never forget who the parent, two-year-olds are not the parents. Preschoolers or elementary kids don't make the orders or the guidelines for your home. Okay, I just got that in there. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying when I say a child is dependent? You remember when you were a child, if you went out to eat, of course, back in the years, back when I was younger, there weren't a lot of fast food restaurants, almost none. And you didn't go out to eat very often at all as a family. This is amazing. People ate at home. <laughs> but... And, 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 you know, I, I remember as a child, it was good to be in a family and say, what do you want? Well, see, I didn't have any money with me. If I wanted a hamburger and fries, I was dependent upon my dad to buy the hamburger and fries. I was dependent. I, I, didn't, have a way, I didn't have a way to get it. And a trusting child is an environment there with... Uh, with his or her parents, is there to says, you know, I know that, mom, I know that dad will take care of me. I don't have to worry about where the next meal is going to come from. I don't have to worry about whether how clothes to wear or not. 
I don't have to worry because I completely trust and I'm dependent upon Daddy, Abba, Father. Man, that's, that is a sign of greatness. A child is transparent. Let me use another word, authentic. If there's anything that turns people off when it comes to Christianity's concern are those people who are phonies, who say one thing and do another. It really is detrimental to the cause, to the witness of Christ when we're not authentic. Now, we're not perfect, but we need to be authentic and real. And when we say we believe the Word... We should trust God to help us walk that word out, to live it. What we need is authentic Christianity. You want to be a powerful witness to the community, the school, the place where you be an authentic Christian. There are certain ways you don't talk. There are certain attitudes you don't have. There are certain things you don't do. Why? Not because you're better than them, but because you want to be Christ-like. You want to honor Him. If I say that I'm a follower of Christ and I want to look, behave, be like a follower of Christ, we call that authentic. And the world is searching for authentic Christians, authentic Christian families. So very important. Uh, A child is persistent. Yeah. A child, some of them just will not give up. They're persistent. They get something on their mind. They want to do something a particular way. They are persistent. What for us to become great in the childlike manner, we need to learn to be persistent. Don't give up. Don't give up. Know what God's Word says. Look at His promises. Look what He has for you. And then be persistent. In faith, be persistent. And know whether you see it happening right now. It's yours in the name of Jesus. Yeah, amen. A child is forgiving. A child is forgiving. Uh, you know, oftentimes uh, kids can get just really mad at one another. She's not my friend anymore. I don't like them anymore. And in a day or two, you look around and there they are. All friends again. BFF, they, they are, they just, here. So, you don't hold grudges. Childlike. And these are all indicators of whether we live a life of greatness or not. A child is imaginative. You know, one of the heartbreaking things that happens to those of us who come to Christ and maybe have been a Christian for a long time You remember when you first got married? How many of you remember when you first got married? Yeah, you better. Remember when you first got married? Now, things change. Now, everybody thinks I'm going to go one way with that. Things change. You know the times when you just, this may not apply to any one of you, but in a lot of situations you write notes to one another, you buy flowers for no occasion, you're concerned about them, maybe even open the door for them. 
and back during the day when all of our phones were at home, tied to the wall. (laughs) I'm hesitant to think that there's some people here that don't even know what I'm talking about when I say a phone fastened to the wall. And you get this phone up and you try to have, you know, most people were not well off enough during those days to have two phones. You didn't have one off in your bedroom. Children were not off a place where they could talk separate. So you'd take that and you'd find your little corner or get in a closet or something. And you'd spend all of that precious time talking to one another. And you, you just said, you know that you need to hang up. Time to get through. Hang up. No. You hang up. No. You hang up. And this, we look at it and it's a silliness. It's, it's silliness. But there, there's something about, you know, I know a lot of it's giddiness. Is giddiness a word? I know a lot of it is that, and it's all emotional. But in a real marriage relationship where there's a real love for one another, there's passion. You want to be with each other. Right? It seems that though in the early days, we demonstrate that more. Right? We talk about it more. We experience it more together. But after 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we've not, we not necessarily lost the passion. Down deep inside, it's there somewhere. But it's been so long since we've experienced it, so long since we have lived it out and demonstrated it. We've allowed those love fires, we've allowed them to grow cold. You still love your wife, still love your husband, but it's just not the same. Well, it's true. There is the newness of that new relationship that cannot be duplicated 20, 30, 40 years after you're married. That's true. But there is, in reality, a way that that passion, when you're in those early years, can be developed and grow in your relationship with God, relationship with each other, and it can grow and progress till whether you always feel as giddy as you did or do some of the things you did before, there's nothing, there's, the passion is no less today than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's still there. In fact, in many ways, those of you who've been married for a long time, you look and say, look, our marriage, I believe, is stronger and better. I wouldn't trade our marriage of 30 years for what it was back when we were married a year or two. What an astounding statement. You know what happened there? What happens to so many families? They lose the newness of their marriage. Can you keep the newness and still have a long-term relationship? I believe you can, but you have to feed it. You have to develop it. It's something that you must do intentionally. And what I'm saying here is to be childlike, we need to return to a time, talking to families now, particularly to marriages, couples. God wants us to live a way in our relationships to where there's that constant renewal in our relationship. There's a freshness to it. And in your relationship with God, He wants us to maintain that freshness. But oftentimes people that have been Christians for a long time have become very dull and very stagnant. And though they have something that real that happened inside of them, it doesn't show. And the passion seems to be gone. And our worship 
consists, our Christian life consists primarily of coming to a gathering one time a week and sitting in rows and singing a few songs and hearing somebody teach. That's pretty much it. Yeah, I give. I give. I'm a faithful giver. Praise God. That's wonderful. Yeah, I don't do. There's some things I'm not going to do because I know that they're contrary to what God teaches. That's wonderful. But the question we need to ask ourselves this morning, folks, is where is the passion? Where is the desire to love him with all of our heart and to love one another? Where is their desire to reach out to those that are next door or down the street? Where is their desire to gather up somebody and take out to eat and talk with them? Where is their desire to go help those that are hurting, that are in need, that desperately need someone to come alongside? Where is their desire to go and help that person? Where is the desire to get on our knees and pray for those people, pray for our family, pray for the lost? Where is the desire? Has it grown cold? Has it, have we become indifferent? We still love God, but do we need to be fired up again? And I think so. You know, and children, they still have a sense of wonder and awe, excitement. You know, kids can get excited over just about any little thing. It doesn't take, we've seen this all through our years with kids and grandkids, that it doesn't take an expensive, a very expensive toy. It doesn't take a, a, a most popular video game or equipment. It doesn't take those things. It takes that daily caring, that daily loving and expressing that love. And it takes you. It takes you. Uh, our kids are blessed. Our grandkids have been blessed. They got great parents. They have stuff. They may not have as much stuff as some other families or whatever, but some families have too much stuff. Some kids have too much stuff. But they, they're blessed. They have, they've had different things that they, you know, their toys, their things they play with. They are blessed, and I'm, I'm good with that. Bless them. Let these kids have good things to play with and enjoy. But you've noticed a lot of times it's like with everything that's going on, sometimes the grandkids would come over to our house, the little farmhouse there, and, and get on the big swing that hangs down from the old oak tree and swing. Here this past year, we resurrected an old game that we used to play as kids. We called it Kick the Old Tin Can. I understand that that was redneck and country title for that. I understand proper is kick the can. And we called hit the old tin can. All right. And so during the summer, some of the grandkids were there at the house. And we started talking with them. And I said, you guys, do y'all remember the game that we call it hit the old tin can? It's called kick. The- y'all ever played that? No. No. What do you do? So we drew out a little circle and put, we, you know, Unfortunately, we couldn't find the kind of can they use, so we used a plastic bottle or something. I've got, but put it in the middle of the circle, explained to them the rules, which was to be explained to them many more times afterwards. But explained <laughs> to them the rules, got, and and then the person's it. You know, someone throws the can or gets rid of the can out of the circle. Person has to run back. That's it. Has to run back. Put it in the circle, and then 
kind of like a kind of like a hide and go seek game. And if you can sneak in, knock the can out of the circle again before they get back there, then you got to start all over. It really builds patience. <laughs> but what was amazing about that? We talk about that a little bit. We're sitting out there talking. They've got things they can do. They can play ball. They can you know play things. They got other stuff they can do. But they spend literally hours after that throwing around what we call this old thing, throwing around, throwing, running, chasing around. Doesn't take a whole lot. What was, what was there different about that? It was that we were with them. It's that they were doing something together. It, there was a sense of wonder and excitement about it. where I'm at. Okay, I spent long enough. Let's go number two. Go number two. All right, we won't take that long on two and three. Relax. Number two, first childlike. Number two is humility. If you want to see a real mark of greatness, then there has to be humility. Um, humility. <laughs> interesting. Humility is interesting. Someone once said that uh, my greatest virtue is my humility. I know. Think about that just a second. Somebody. Humility is the ability to act embarrassed when you tell people how wonderful you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Humility is like underwear, essential but indecent if it shows. <laughs> the great professional boxer Muhammad Ali said, when you're as great as I am, it's hard to be humble. <laughs> Humility. You don't see a lot of it in the world anymore at all. Someone once said that the graveyards are full of indispensable men. You know, how do you get that balance where Thank you, God, that I'm great because I'm created in your image. And you've called me, Lord. You've given me what true success is and true greatness. And that's what you desire for me. And yet, Lord, I realize apart from you, I'm nothing. I realize that without you, I can, I, I can do nothing. I realize it's all you working in me. So what can I be proud about? What, what can I be a snobbisher? are headstrong about, about me. How could, no, it's not about me, God. It's about you. It's about you. It's what you have done in my life. Go with me to uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. And this is found in uh, most all, the, three of the Gospels anyway. It's similar statements because there's different writers that are writing these. And they, some of them take a little bit of different slant on things when you read the Scripture in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. Let's move quickly. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him, to, to Jesus. And as teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What's your request, Jesus asked. And they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on the right and one on the left. Now, that's what we call gall, the nerve. But, you know, there was another, we think it's a separate occasion, get this, and you read in another portion of the New Testament in, in the Gospels, where James and John were their mother. Parents will do this sometimes. Where their mother goes to the person in charge. And, says, and, and it says that she knelt before him. Or she 
submitted herself to him and said, Jesus, can I ask you a favor? What is it? When you come into your kingdom and in power, will you put one of my sons at your right hand and one of the boys evidently heard it at home. They, their mother thought they should be there and they thought they should be there. Why in the world do they think they should be there over the other ones? Maybe it was because they were part of the inner circle. Peter, James, and John, those are the ones Jesus spent most of the time with. They were at the transfiguration. The rest of the disciples weren't. So maybe they thought, well, Jesus, I'm more important because I'm part of the inner circle. Or, or maybe because their dad was a successful businessman, a big fishing, uh, fishing business, Zebedee. Maybe they thought, wait, we're important. We should be in a place of authority. Or maybe it was because their mother actually was probably related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. But in any case, they thought they had an inside track to be the head honchos, to be the, the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. And Jesus' response says, look, you don't really know what you're asking. I'm paraphrasing. You don't really know what you're asking. Are you able to, are you able to drink from the same cup? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering? In other words, Jesus was saying, look, this is, you understand, when you're going to be my follower, going to be, there's going to be a price to pay. It's going to require something. If you're going to be my follower, you're going to see that I suffered, you're going to suffer because of your faith in me. Or you, you think if you're going to be in that place of authority that you're going to be able to do that? They said, yes, Lord, we think we would. Well, they did end up going through those things. That thing is that uh, Jesus said, I have no right to say who will sit on my right and my left. God has prepared, the Father has prepared those places for the one he has chosen. So we don't know. Verse 41. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, I think it's so neat. They're walking down the road. They're talking about, well, I wonder who's going to be in charge here. I wonder who's going to be at the right hand. That's what they were talking about. There's a lot of other things they could have been talking about, but that's what they were talking about. James and John had come with this proposal to Jesus, and then the other disciples heard that these two went to Jesus, and they were indignant. The translation of that is mad. They were mad. Verse 32, so Jesus called them all together. He called them all together. He got a small group. Called them all together. Said, you know that the rulers of this world, they lord it over their people. And the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But get the next few words, verse 43. But among you, it will be different. Do you remember the title of this series, Live in a Different World? He says, but among you, it'll be different. How so? Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life a ransom for many. And it was at the Last Supper or the upper room, Jesus proved that uh, again by taking the, the basin, the water, the towel, and washing the disciples' feet. He came to serve, not to be served. You know, um, for some people, the mark of greatness is how many people are is that how many people are serving me? You're going to say, I'm great because look at the number of people that are serving me. But just the opposite is true. 
Greatness is marked by how many people you and I are serving. How many are we serving? James chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, but he gives, talking about the Lord, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you rather be opposed or be given grace? Yes? What? You can answer me. You rather, you'd rather be opposed by God or given grace? Grace, grace, and more grace. Proverbs 22, 4, I like this, says, The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord for reverence. The reward for being humble and reverence in the Lord is riches and honor and life. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He'll exalt you. The third and final mark of greatness, if we're going to look at serving in order to be great, is in fact what we call the act of servanthood. Look with me again to the gospel of, of Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 30. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee, that's Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there. Now this happened quite often. He got away from the crowds. He had to, to continue in what the Father had called him to do. He had to. And needed that time, of course, for prayer, time with his disciples to teach them because it was going to be left up to them after he was gone to carry on. It was his Holy Spirit in them. Verse 31, for he wanted to, to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of the enemies. He'll be killed, but three days later he'll rise from the dead. Verse 32, and they didn't understand what he was saying. However, they were afraid to ask him what it meant. You know something? That Jesus would reprimand or rebuke his disciples for, for little faith or no faith and for unbelief. But you never find in the scripture Jesus rebuking anyone for asking questions. He's not opposed to you asking questions. And they wanted, they, they didn't know what he meant. You know, this wasn't the first time he had said this. There have been other times when he said, the Son of Man will die. You understand that I'm going to be betrayed. And I will die. And three days later, I'll be raised from the dead. They, he had told them that over and over again. But they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. Verse 33, after they arrived in Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you guys talking about? What were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about what, which of them was the greatest. Well, if that had been your conversation, would you have been proud? They were ashamed. They were embarrassed that here they are following the Lord and he's told them what he's facing. Though they don't understand, he's told them what he's going to be facing. He's tried to explain to them the kingdom of God. And all they can think about, who's going to be the big dog? Who's going to be in charge? You know, I, I grew up on the farm, and uh, and we uh, uh, there was a period of time where we raised chickens, broilers. Yes. Now we didn't do it on the scale back then. If you had six thousand to ten thousand chickens, that was a lot. Now people do it. I don't know how many, Peggy, and thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Every few weeks. <laughs> yeah. But for me back then, that was a big thing. 
But I noticed that you, you be around those chickens, you notice some things about them, their behavior. First of all, if there was one that was very different, they'd usually pick on him. If he appeared different or very weak or frail, everybody else pick on him until finally you usually kill them. But you would also notice that there was usually a head chicken. There was a boss chicken. And you would find one, and, and then this chicken would take charge, and the other ones would follow suit. Now, they'd be frustrated at one another because they weren't in charge, but they would want to put someone under them. I may not be the number one chicken, but I'll be number two because there's going to be somebody number three. Do you, know, you know that's where we get our term pecking order? And the disciples were simply trying to figure out the pecking order. Who's really going to be important when this kingdom? Because you see, they still had the idea that Jesus was coming into the city of Jerusalem and the Roman government was going to be overthrown and Jesus was going to be established as the new king. He would be in charge and he would rule. And so if this is what they were seeing that the Messiah was going to do, if this was their understanding, then they had some good days ahead of them. Look, we've been close to him. Look, we, we've been his chosen ones. We've worked beside him for nearly three years. When this happens, guess what? We're going to be involved in leadership. We're going to be the head of the government. We're going to have official positions. That was their thinking. They didn't understand that it was going to be a different kind of kingdom. Oh, eventually he's coming and eventually he's going to set up his rule and reign on earth. Eventually there will be that kingdom. But the kingdom that was coming was to be in our hearts. The kingdom that was coming was to be something that he would do inside of us to bring his kingdom down here on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So very, very important. So very important. Now, Jesus doesn't belittle them for being ambitious. Some people say, it's wrong for a Christian to be ambitious. But it's not wrong to be ambitious. It's the motive behind our ambition that's the problem. There's a selfish ambition that centers on pride and greed and deceit, getting attention, power, being served. That, you know, our word attention comes from a Latin word which means to go both ways to gain one's point, to reach the point. You know, our term for that, two-faced. Interesting, two-faced. In other words, it was, it was manipulative. But in the Greek, the word for ambition means to strive to attain a well-deserved honor. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, where it says, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. If that's what your ambition is above everything else, to please him, to be approved and applauded by him, by the Lord and not by other people. It's not about comparing yourself to anyone else. It's about whether you're pleasing the Lord or not. There's nothing wrong with ambition. It's, how, it's what kind of ambition we have. It's about who our greatness is from. Verse 35 says, He sat down, called the twelve disciples over him, and he said, Whoever wants to be first must take the last place and be servant of everyone else. It's easier said than done. John 12, 26 says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Get this now. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know when, you know when whether you have a servant's attitude or not, you know when that comes to light? When you don't get the promotion or attention that you thought you deserved? When you're overlooked? 
Someone said, you know how much of a servant you actually are when you get treated like one. Y'all still with me, aren't you? I'll say that one more time. You know how much of a servant you actually are when you're treated like one. We'll close out with these statements about servanthood and serving because you serve to be great in the kingdom of God. Serving is not weakness. Being a servant is not weak. Humility is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. This is not about being mealy-mouthed. This is not about being a rug that everyone walks on. This is not about having no confidence in yourself. Because serving is not a lack of confidence. It's confidence in the right one. And there's a big difference. Serving is Christ-like. He says, if you're going to serve, you're going to be like me. Serving brings reward. There's good stuff that comes when you set yourself to be a servant. God will do some amazing things in your life. Because the promise is, if we'll humble ourselves, he'll exalt us and give honor. You see, here's the thing. Jesus never discouraged greatness. He redefined it. Jesus never, he never discouraged greatness. He redefined it and said, oh, no, no, no. Everybody else thinks this is what great is what's great. But here is greatness. Here's what real greatness is all about. You don't achieve greatness by dominating someone else or getting them to serve you. It's about serving others. It's about dying to self. It's about depending on God. It's about self-examination. There's all kinds of things you and I can do and be. Sometimes we say, well... What, what can I do to make a difference? How can my life of servanthood impact the world? I love the statement that D.L. Moody wrote uh, according, uh, alongside of uh, a reference in Isaiah in his Bible. This is what D.L. Moody wrote. He said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do I ought to do, and what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. I want to commit ourselves to serve the Lord and live that life of servanthood. God put that in our hearts today. Will you receive that? Amen. Would you stand? Let's pray together. Amen. <clears throat> Well, I know that uh, this type of message is not one of those messages that necessarily stirs people up with a lot of hallelujahs going on. I understand that. It's, it's not a promotional speech. <laughs> this is where the rubber meets the road that says, look, if you're going to live from me, things change. You live in a different world now. There are different things that apply to you. And if you want to experience the greatness that God has for you and it's a blessing, then walk it out His way. Childlike, humble yourselves before the Lord and be willing to serve one another and serve others. That's what we're going to commit ourselves to this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, thank you for the time we've had shared together in praise and worship and fellowship. Thank you for your word. That is true. Renew our mind. God, change our thinking. Redefine in us what's really important and what isn't.
redefining us what is true greatness and temporary world greatness. Redefining us the joy of giving and serving as a way of ministering to you. Show us, reveal that to us. Lord, together as a body of believers, thank you, Lord. Let me interrupt just a moment. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, we always, the door's always open. If you say, you know, I've heard you talk a lot about it this morning, but I really, something's missing in my life. I, I don't feel that I have a personal relationship with God. I realize I need that relationship. I need Christ in my life. I believe he gave his life for me. I don't understand it completely, but I believe it. And I want to surrender my life today and choose Jesus as my Savior and Lord. If that's in your heart, as I continue to pray, you're welcome to come up here. I'm not really to embarrass you. I just love to pray with you. Or you can come afterwards. I'll be here if you'd like to talk about that. But I want to always, you always know that the door is always open here for you to profess that faith as a follower of Christ. Lord, help us, those of us who've made that decision to never lose our burden and concern for those out there who need you, Lord, who really need you. Help us to demonstrate our Christian life, to be authentic in our faith, to be willing to serve and give and not to be puffed up with pride. It's not all about us, Lord. It's all about you. Change us, Lord. Change us from the inside out. And we pray that it'll bring you all glory and honor and praise. And we declare this in Jesus' name. Everybody in Jesus' name, amen.